Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is the 19th of March. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how are you? I'm fine, Gary, thanks. How are you? So, let's get right into it. I reached out to the Russian embassy, I'd say the start of last month, because I'd heard rumours that um, Russia had approached Ireland about Sputnik vaccine and whether or not we would be interested in taking some of it. And the result was the Irish government totally ignored it and it never went anywhere. When I tried to ask the Russian embassy about it, the Russian embassy is um, not great to talk to Michael. No, not chatty. No, not terribly, not terribly. And uh, not terribly proficient at English either. That's less uh, impressive than you would have thought. The Russians were used to staffing embassies with people who could speak English. Actually, weirdly enough, as embassies go in Ireland... They're pretty good. It's it's something I wouldn't have realised before I started dealing with embassies. Lots of embassies are primarily staffed by people whose English is not good in this country. I don't know if that's because we're seen as a minor player, so we don't get terribly good people, or if it's just because it's very difficult to learn languages to the extent where you can remove sometimes quite heavy modes of speaking and accents. I thought this day in diploma, world diplomacy, going to speak English because... There are going to be lots of places you're going to send people that you're not going to have staff that will be able to speak that particular language. And the, the language they will speak will be... I mean, more people speak English as a second language than speak it as a first language. The email I got was a statement from the Russian ambassador to Ireland. I suspect it was sent to several media organizations. The Russian embassy doesn't have much of a mailing list because they once accidentally sent it out. And it's just not a very long list, Michael weirdly short actually but anyway the statement is called the world needs vaccines not politics and it's mostly about how people didn't trust the sputnik vaccine but when we get nearer to the end of it it starts getting interesting because it says many irish citizens and media representatives regularly write to the embassy asking if the irish government has contacted us about sputnik 5 supplies and what he says is i would like to assure all of them that we would like to help and are open for any discussions on vaccine supplies to ireland as well as other aspects of cooperation with the russian vaccine producers if there is an interest on the irish government's side if there is an interest on the irish government's side now that sort of sounds like maybe there was something to those rumors maybe not but why would you send out a press release saying, look, we're willing to play ball if you want to, just randomly? Uh, hard to know. Do you remember, not specifically to do with it, I don't know if you noticed, Gary, that there were some slightly warmer and fuzzier words coming out of London yesterday regarding the possibility of giving uh, Ireland a bit of a help out on the old vaccine front? There certainly seems to be a bit of a, a behind-the-scenes battle there between the help the Irish and fuck that crowd <laughs> elements within the Tory party. But do you remember when this whole thing broke first, the comment made, when we're talking several several weeks ago now, was, what, I, I, was that, I'm, I'm asking this because I can't remember, to be honest, if it was in regard to the Russian offer, the potential Russian officer offer, or the putative Russian offer, or any, any English offer, when uh, Neil Richmond said, while it was very nice 
that we were we were involved in the European procurement system, and therefore the need to seek uh, vaccines out of serve was very unlikely to occur. So I think you're I think you've combined two things. There was when Neil Richmond, and this might have been slightly out of context, but from the videos I've seen, it looks like he says that. The Sputnik vaccine doesn't work. And a different time when it was a PQ asking whether or not people could legally sell vaccines on the private market if they acquired them. And the answer was that there's nothing precluding this. But as we are involved in the European procurement process, it's not envisioned that such uh, you know, there would ever be a need for or desire for people to do this. It's tr- well, whatever it was, I would suggest that so there are people, Gary, out there who would say there may indeed be a need right now for that, as it turns out, that we have been slightly disappointed by the procurement system. By the way, uh, I was talking to somebody recently who works in the, the private healthcare system, and I was asking, I said, do you know what, and I was all surprised that nobody in the hospitals, whatever, the, the large private hospitals in the country, had bothered to go looking for some vaccines to see if they could buy some and set them up. And the person I was speaking to, quite a senior bod in the system said, oh, what a good idea. I, I'm going, I'm seeing X tomorrow. I must mention that to him. So who knows, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe they just hadn't thought about it. I don't know. And we will be seeing private vaccines next week. And if we are, I'm taking full, full credit for it. I will demand a free one. Anyway, the Russians seem to be saying, ask us and see. Yeah, they say there since the registration of Sputnik uh, V. Russia has been offering collaboration to all interested parties, regardless of political considerations, and with no strings attached. They're not displaying horrendous desire to vaccinate all of their own people first, are they? And, you know, they say there's no place for politicking around COVID-19. And then they say, and I quite enjoyed this because you know they know that you don't think it's true, because it's not true. But it's required for them to say it. Because they say that um, public health, both domestically and internationally, is, is at stake. Nobody is safe until everybody is safe. That is the ruling principle of Russia. <laughs> Good man. That is the ruling principle of Russia. No one is safe until everyone is safe. Yeah. You know what? There's, there's a, there, it is, if you looked at that in a certain way, there's actually a profound truth about Russian history in that. Yeah, not one they want you to think about, though. No, maybe not quite the way they may, they meant it, but still all the same. But it would seem to be that it's on the table. And, you know, it's good to know that they're on the table. And it would have been good to know that, um, let's say, American v- vaccines are on the table. Particularly yesterday, when the Taoiseach came out and said that there would be no American vaccines delivered to Ireland. I believe what he said was that America is unsure if there are enough vaccines for their own people, and so therefore you know, there would be no export of them. And, you know, no American vaccines for you, which is interesting, as they have, I think, 30 million AstraZeneca in warehouses, and they have been purchased, they're there, but they haven't been approved, so can't be used. Fast forward to yesterday, sorry, so Martin would have said this two days ago, and then yesterday, by the time the podcast goes out, it was announced that the US was going to send between uh, vaccines to Canada and to Mexico, four million vaccines, and they had no plans to share vaccines with other countries. So, you, you O'Connell from The Independent goes to the Taoiseach's office and says in very journalistic terms, what the hell is happening? Considering that you had a call with this man on St. Patrick's Day, you were talking about how long it went and how great it went, and you said this wasn't happening, and it wasn't possible. And then the day after this is announced, 
And I thought the response given by the Taoiseach's spokesperson was very interesting, Michael, the exact phrasing of it. How the US allocates their vaccines is a matter for the US government. The Taoiseach raised the importance of open global vaccine supply chains with President Biden during their bilateral talk. (laughs) Yeah. Which sounds very similar to saying the Taoiseach asked Joe Biden for vaccines or offered to purchase them from Joe Biden or offered any sort of deal. If you looked at it and didn't really pay attention, you might think that that's what that uh, quote is saying, but it's not. It's actually not at all. It sort of sounds like the Taoiseach had a general chat about the importance of supply chains in vaccine production and didn't, in fact, at any point actually ask for vaccines, perhaps because that would have been socially awkward. Now, maybe he did, but you would think if he did, you just say you did and you got told no. Well, uh, maybe, but would you? I mean, if you'd been told no, would you not say, well, we didn't ask, obviously. Or maybe the Americans intimated sort of in a preemptive strike that uh, they wouldn't be giving them, so therefore don't ask. So if you don't ask, you can't be told no. Although if what they're saying is what he said and nothing else was said, it sounds a bit like, I don't know, a young fella saying to the lady of his interest, who he wants to ask to the grad, but instead of asking her to the grad, says so. Really looking forward to the grad. Are you looking forward to the grad? Yeah, I'm looking forward to the grad. It'll be a great night, won't it? Yeah, it'll be a great night. And then when asked by his friends, did you ask her? Yeah, I asked her, but she said no. Uh, But if you asked her, she'd say, no, he never asked me. Because a sense of social awkwardness prevailed. He got all shy, didn't really want to ask. And (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he did ask and maybe he was told no. Maybe he didn't ask because he knew he'd be told no. Or maybe he just didn't ask. We don't know. The Belgians are not a bit shy to say that. Belgians have written to everybody in Europe that hasn't, which would include us, I suppose, at this stage. Uh, everybody who's not using AstraZeneca at the moment, would they mind sending the AstraZeneca they're not using to them? Because they'd really like to use it. So a little bit more Belgian directness is what we need, Gary. That sounds like uh, what the Irish Times would call uh, you know, something that might look a bit desperate, Michael. And it's very important that we... Desperation is the new panic. It's what we've got to absolutely avoid. (laughs) You know that is... There's a poem, is it by Stevie Smith? Not waving, but drowning. (laughs) And I think we are now in that point where, you know, everybody's concerned that we should just be calmly waving. But in fact, we know we're not waving, we're drowning. I think it's okay to look a bit desperate now. I think it's acceptable. I think it's even socially acceptable to look a bit, a, li- a little bit desperate. Look what we saw during the week. The European Medicine yeah. Agency comes out and says, the report issue with AstraZeneca and blood clots, the potential issue. Don't stop vaccinating. Keep vaccinating. The benefits of vaccinating are so great that even if this was shown to be true, and it hasn't been, and it was shown to be happening at a much higher level, it would still make sense to keep vaccinating just because that's the trade-off. We decide, in fact, we're going to stop it and... On Sunday, I think, Sunday gone was the first day we had stopped administering the AstraZeneca. Now, the HSE has told some reporters, I think the Irish Times reported it, that because of that stoppage, it'll be late next week before AstraZeneca actually gets kicking again because they need to reschedule all the appointments. They apparently stopped all the deliveries for some reason because that was just a thing we were doing. 
And no, there's no rushing it, Michael. Like, you get to it. You get it done eventually. No, no. Yeah, it should be on yeah. Your haste makes waste, Michael. But that... Sorry, but... Okay, the, the EMA first came out and said, listen, by the way, even if this is happening, when we don't know if it is happening, because of the nature of the risk that's being reported and because of the nature of the benefit that the vaccinations accrue, we should still keep going anyway. And AstraZeneca themselves came out and very strong statement saying... This isn't happening. And the, the data that was produced in Israel and the data which was produced in the United Kingdom was shown to show that this wasn't happening. And they're actually, in the real world data, the the number of uh, of issues regarding clotting was slightly below the, that which you'd expect in the general population at the same level. After all of that, wasn't didn't the EMA just come out and say, actually, we've looked at the data and it's not happening? They said, well, it doesn't look like it's happening, but we don't have enough data to conclusively say it's not happening. And so we will continue to investigate it, but continue the vaccination program. With the, 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 the directive to keep the vaccination program. Because I was listening to a radio comment tonight from uh, somebody, from the, the assistant, uh, chief medical officer. And he was saying that they were going to now go and talk to a number of groups. And they're going to talk to their colleagues and colleagues in Europe. And NIAC, did I make that up? NIAC? And, and they were going to talk to lots of different people, and then they were going to look at the data, and then they would come back and they get angry. Why? What? I mean, I thought the EMA was the whole thing. That the reason that people like the Hungarians were very bad and silly to use Sputnik is because the EMA hadn't actually approved it yet, and we couldn't do anything until the EMA had said it. But now the EMA is saying we should do it, and we're not doing it. If your primary objective is public health, that would appear to be vaccinating as many people as possible. However, primary object is avoiding blame for you and the organization you represent. EMA is not the be-all and end-all. The, be- the EMA is, is the floor. If the EMA says you can't use vaccines, you don't use those vaccines. If the EMA says you can use vaccines, but there might be a small issue with it, well, then you don't use those vaccines. Well, of course, you especially don't use them if you don't have them anyway. Well, I mean, that's the thing. On Sunday, we administered 303 vaccines. Was it 303? I thought it was 301. Oh, that's not too bad. No, that, that we upward reviewed it. Oh, good, good, very good. I, I, I'd seen the 303 repeated and I thought people were getting it mixed up with Thermopylae. You know, 300 men and three men. I put up that stat and the amount of people who accused me of lying. Because what's happening is people are using the COVID hub data. Right. And I have just explained this, I'd say, dozens of times over the last number of weeks. The COVID hub data, which is the data that pretty much everyone is using and which TDs are being directed to by the government. And it comes out every day and it gives you a new figure. Yes. Most people assume that is measuring daily vaccinations because it gives you a total and then it gives you a new total and says, you know, that's happened over the day. It's not. The COVID hub is not measuring daily vaccination figures at all. What the COVID hub actually measures is changes in the total number of notified vaccinations. Right. And what that means is if a thousand vaccines are done in a day, but let's say they missed 5,000 two weeks ago. Okay. They will be added in and the COVID hub will tell you there were 6,000. The total has gone up by 6,000. It, it doesn't actually reflect daily vaccination patterns at all. Okay. So where would where should you go to get the actual number? 
the HSE runs a service called the IIS service, which has been doing daily updates of it and breaks it down by day and then the six days preceding. And then it will update that in a rolling uh, basis. So you can go back and you can see uh, the numbers on a day and the updates to that day over the next six days. Now, it does mean if updates happen uh, further than a week back, you can't see them. But it always means that you can look at a day and say a thousand vaccines were done that day, not 6,000. It has been a, a massive, massive issue because everyone is using this data. And the problem is, is that it inflates the numbers. So it makes it look like the government is doing more vaccinations than it actually is. Which makes sense because the longer the vaccine program goes on and the more vaccinations that are given out, the greater the potential for upward revisions. And as we go further in, as more vaccines are given out in the future, and if we actually get up to the numbers the government are aiming for, that's going to shoot up massively. Yes. But it's kind of in the government's interest to direct people to it, because it's given in a way where you would, you're would you going to assume it is daily vaccination numbers, because why wouldn't it be? Instead, what it is, is the difference in the total, which is notifications. There's no relationship to any day on it, other than when the HSE is told vaccinations were done. So, in a way, it's a little bit like those odd glitches we used to get with mortality rates. When when we, you'd open the paper one day and discover fewer people had died than had died the previous day. And it was because that some deaths that had been ascribed to COVID had now been de-ascribed. And other de- sometimes it would go up because deaths which had actually occurred two months previously had now been notified and they were included in the numbers. So the numbers would go up and down. So it's a bit, it's, it's, it's not right. It's about the notification process principally rather than the actual numbers on, on the day. But it's presented in a way which I think is nearly deliberately designed to confuse people. Uh-huh. Although it could absolutely be done accidentally. I mean, the HSE, if it wanted to remove any of this doubt, could simply every day put up an Excel sheet that just has a day and a number. You wouldn't even have to have the movements, just that data, and everything would be verifiable. As it is, you've got seven days, anything older than that cannot be verified. You can't tell where movements are coming from. And it took them, do you remember it took them a month to get this this reporting system off the ground? Yeah, I do. And we kept being promised it, that very soon now it'll be daily reports will be available. And then they were saying, well, maybe not quite daily, but, you know, quite daily, every couple of days, every few days. And then eventually it happened. And then it wasn't da- it wasn't even the colour daily. And then sometimes you'd have the number of vaccinations and you'd have the number of vaccines available. And then for a long period, you couldn't find the number of vaccines. Because when I say vaccine, the number of doses available in the country, how many should be used and how many be, and we're still on hand. And that information disappeared for a while. Um, I never quite worked out why that was. No, because it's, it's, it's a mess. Everyone agrees that the reporting of this thing is a mess. There's no doubt about that. It's just badly done. The one thing I will say about just from looking at the vaccine stats, and I don't want to labour this point, is I we were, I think we were talking in the last episode about cohort four vaccinations. Cohort four being those who are under 70 and are classed as at very high risk. Yes. We were meant to vaccinate 10,000 of those last week. We missed that target by about 60%. Right. So we got about 4,000 done in the end. We are on course to miss every target we have set for ourselves. We hit last week's target of 84,000, barely. We got like 85,000 in the end. But we were meant to be on 100,000 a week already. Three weeks ago, we were meant to be on 100,000 a week. They've been systematically lowering the targets every week. And Michael, I'm, you know, I'm 
I'm okay with maths. I might not be the best, but it's generally my understanding that if you move the targets down every week, eventually you will hit one. And it took us a month, but we still managed to hit it. Yeah, it's an, it's not a happy story. We're now getting closer and closer to the... It will eventually... Well, we hope, I anyway. Mean, we will eventually get to April. And if you remember, the numbers for April were supposed to be going up even more. The targets for April were going to be substantially higher. And I don't see it. I just don't see it. I'll tell you... So can we, can we await um, that there will be... Uh, news published shortly that a note has been dropped around to the Russian embassy saying, you know, lads, you were saying about the old vaccine there? Sure. Well, I mean, the Irish the Irish Times is actively lobbying against it, saying it would be a PR coup for the Russians, to which I say it absolutely would. It absolutely would. But so fucking what? I mean, in capital letters, so fucking what? I mean, wow. It'll be a PR coup. It'll be in the day's newspapers. And then, do you know what the... Ha- Oh, why would you? It'll be it'll be a newspaper story, and then as, as uh, there's any used to say in England, you you're the hardest thing in the world to find. Yesterday's papers. If they if they did take the vaccines, that might give us a bit of a break from the slowly boiling rage I've begun to feel every time I see a Nefit press conference and the phrase "If we can all just do a little bit more, the next two weeks are critical." We are at a crossroads, or as I enjoyed from yesterday's Nefit briefing, we don't rightfully know what will happen here. To which I would say, then what exactly is your purpose for existing? Maybe not knowing exactly, but a broad hint as opposed to in a year we've collected no data, we have no idea where anything is happening, we have no idea of sexual risk, we actually have no way of doing it, we're applying models that were found to be grossly unusable in England. It's basically a black box that no one seems to understand what goes into. The end result seems to just be always the same thing, but now the numbers seem to have stagnated because of a particular variant, and they don't seem to have many ideas of exactly how to deal with that. It is true that the numbers seem to to be stagnating. We seem to have got hooked on on a certain level, and that doesn't seem to be going down, and that's um, not good. However, the numbers that I saw reported yesterday had said that it was zero deaths, and that's a good thing. But it's an interesting thing, and it's a politically problematic thing. And I would like to go back to a, a little bit of a peroration I had here on, on this podcast a few weeks ago. There's a question I would like, and I think, and I, I, I genuinely, I'm not doing this, I'm not trying to score any points, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in my own amateur opinion as to the government about the future and how we go ahead as a nation, how we're going to manage the exit, the ultimate exit to this. We have to start talking to people they, about the exit strategy so that people have a reasonable expectation of what's going to happen. And therefore, if we ha- if you communicate honestly with the people about what the plan is, then at least people are not going to be shatteringly disappointed by something that they have an expectation that is, was never going to happen. Okay, my question is this. We have vaccinated the first cohort of very vulnerable people. We know from the global figures that the single most telling predictor for lethality with this virus is age. Now, there's a lot that has been written in the last while that the second, we're now, one of the things that's happened when, in the change in the cohort, the reason why the next cohort has, that certain, certain conditions or diseases or underlying conditions have been identified, including obesity, having a BMI of over 40, because obesity is associated 
is very strongly associated with, with uh, very poor outcomes with the virus, either serious illness, hospitalization, serious illness and, and death. Hopefully we will, in the next period, get to a point where we're, we're succeeding in it. We're going to get to a stage where the lethality of the virus is going to come down very, very substantially. The case numbers are still going to be there, but the numbers of people who are being hospitalized or the numbers of people who are dying are going to be much, much lower because those categories of people and those cohorts that are more likely to be affected in that way are going to be reduced. Now, my question is, if the virus is now a virus which behaves in a substantially different way to the virus of three months ago or a year ago as regards how it affects the population, how it affects hospitalizations, how it people in the ICUs and deaths, do we then start to treat it in a different way? Is our strategy different? Does the way that we, the way that we're allowed to behave, is that going to be different? Or even if the outcomes have substantially changed, the shape of the risk that the virus presents to people is substantially changed. Are we still going to be in the same attitude of lockdown and control? Are we going to treat this on the basis that as long as it represents a threat of lethality to anybody, that we continue to lock down and we continue to have very strict restrictions on socialization and movement and activity. Is what, what is the plan? We are moving towards the situation very slowly, but we are moving through a vaccination process. I haven't heard anybody really talk about the plan for the next stage. And I think we need to start to hear that. Is this virus going to be treated in the same way as the, as the, as its effects on the population change? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago that uh, after a, uh, I think it was a Fianna Fáil parliamentary meeting, Michal Martin announced that they would set up a communication system for uh, people, for GPs, I believe, specifically, to reach out to the HSE about vaccine issues. And do you remember that that had only apparently occurred to them at that point, as opposed to months ago when they were planning the entire thing? Well, I think it, it occurred to them because initially they thought it would be good enough just to put an email address on and they found well that just didn't work so they said well let's put a phone in i'm going to just put that into the basket of we didn't think of that in any way i think that's fair yeah but gary you have to be thinking about this i mean you really do do you we were one of the last countries to start vaccinating because the hse didn't have consent training done recently grift published i think an article or two today on people who were trying to vaccinate for the hse and the loops they had to jump through the idea that anyone has to think of anything or anyone has to have this worked out is a level of optimism which I haven't been able to mount in months. Do you remember I referred some time ago to an article that was published in The Telegraph in November of last year, which was a breaking story in November of last year that the, the, the British government was going to approach the order, uh, I think it was the Order of Walter with St. John's Ambulance, about training 30,000 volunteer vaccinators. Uh, in that story, it referred to the fact that there had been quite a hoo-ha and brouhaha in England because of the kind of bureaucratic hoops doctors, nurses and others who were qualified to give injections, to give uh, vaccines, had been expected to go through. And in response to that, they had changed the regulations. That was November of last year. Now, I can't believe that nobody in Ireland in the civil service, in the whole of the government, wasn't reading the odd English paper, watching the, the English news and noticed that that had occurred and maybe that that should... But yes, 
Actually, I'm talking bullshit. Because the point you're making is exactly what happened. They obviously didn't because you have people doing the same. There was a case in the grip that were reporting about because the person was going to be working in three different vaccination centers, they were going to be expected to do three different sets of tests. Or three have to compile three different sets of applications. I mean, even before that, when we were saying people should return to Ireland and volunteer to work in the health service because it could be overwhelmed, they received tens of thousands of applications. And I remember the last time I looked at it, if they'd gotten half a thousand actually through it, I don't think they're even that high. But there were ca- remember there was a case there, young doctors who come home from Australia and were now stuck with no work here and couldn't get back to Australia because of the quarantine regulations. Well, you see, that's what those people deserve, Michael, for trying to do something good. Anyway, I reiterate. Because there's, there there's a fundamental question here, Gary. I mean, and, and maybe this is a question we should be asking ISAC on as well, because they seem to have the ear of people in power. If this virus behaves in a way now because of vaccination and also because of increased oh, understanding of the virus and better treatments and better therapies in, in hospitals, that it is a substance a substantially, very substantially less lethal the uh, virus. Do we still carry on in the same way? I, I would, I can't tell you what way they'll do. But I will say this, the incentives for these people outside of the political space are very much stacked towards the highest level of not even just caution, but nearly paranoia. There are no consequences to these people if they're wrong. There's no consequences if, if the lockdown continues forever. I mean, actually, Ivan Yates uh, was talking about this with someone there recently, and he was making the point that a third of the country are civil servants. There's no risk to them, despite the fact we're taking on debt at an incredible rate. I mean, in most countries, the deal with the civil service is you're paid less, but your conditions are better, and you have much lower risk of being sacked. The last time I checked in Ireland, and I'm not sure this might not be true anymore because the recession did a whack job and a lot of statistics, and I can't remember when I last checked this, it was the civil service earns more, has better conditions, is far less likely to be fired, routinely gets pay increases, and it's paid for by the private sector. So why? what exactly is, what exactly is the incentive for these people to do this? Their jobs aren't at risk, their reputations aren't at risk. People have been incredibly docile about this whole thing. Okay, I, I, I understand that point and I, I heard it made and I think there's a truth to it. I would observe, I, I would observe on the other hand, that civil servants don't exist in a civil service vacuum. They have children uh, who are at college or who are working. They are married to husbands or wives who are working or not working because they work in different sectors. They have family members. They have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who they, who are severely and or disadvantaged or impoverished because of this. So th- it's not like they live in some perfect enclosed hermetic sealed. Are you familiar with the concept of assorted mating? I am aware of it, uh, but uh, I I think that you know also what what constitutes a civil servant as well is you know is as long as a piece of string. But I do. But there is there is a point there, Gary. I I, I do. The principle of co- the the costs of being cautious. For example, I can perfectly well imagine. Say 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 in a in a weird and horrible and frightening world where people actually listen to anything I said. And let's let's face it, Gary, that would be a worrying world. I said, okay, the virus is not has now is less. 
dangerous than the influenza, right? Because of vaccinations and because of new therapies and drugs or whatever, it is now less, you're less likely to die from uh, COVID-19 than you are from in a normal influenza season. So we will live as if we were in a normal influenza season. And then sometime in October, a 22-year-old footballer who is a star footballer in his club and plays he's played minor for the county and he's in college where he's doing a degree in physics and he's brilliant and he contracts COVID and he dies and it's terrible and it's terribly sad. That's a nightmare scenario for anybody who has advocated that we have to open up because now it's your fault because there's no doubt that would be on the front page of every newspaper. It would be the lead story in every news program on the radio and the TV and trying to say, yeah, lads, but People were dying, People, somebody died last week from the flu and it wasn't on the papers, isn't going to be much of a political help. I understand that, but that's why if you're going to go down, you have to have a conversation. You have to talk to people and actually, honestly communicate, listen, this is what we think we're going to do. This is the reality of it. And also get some kind of a sense of the cost benefits going on here. And when people say, oh, well, you know, it's, on, it's not all about money. Well, you have to explain to people that as people are aware, they're aware of the cancer patients who are not getting the tests done in time or the scans done in time or people who are who, who need operations for either acute, not necessarily, I don't know, acute is being affected, but certainly for chronic conditions not being uh, affected. So other, other medical issues are not being attended to because of this. You have to have the conversation, but that's not, you can't expect to do that over two or three days. You have to, give people time to engage before the thing happens so you can actually honestly address it and have a conversa- a proper conversation about it rather than just impose it. Or, or else you go on with the same situation you're going with now. And I'm sure, I know for a fact, because I'm one of them in my innocence, thinking, you know what, when at whatever stage it happens to be at this stage, Gary, we reach a point where the bulk of the population is vaccinated, we think, finally, we will be free. With one leap, we shall be free. It may be that they have no intention of letting us be free until this thing has been ground into the ground under the heel of zero COVID. But if that's the case, they better tell us that too. Otherwise, you're going to deal with a very, very disengaged population. And they're talk- they're very worried about the far right and these anti-lockdown protests. By God, look what the, the anti-lockdown protests in this autumn are going to look an awful lot more frightening than they are looking now if this is the case and people aren't told, told it and explained it. We have the longest lockdowns in Europe. We have some of the most severe. The level of um, public disquiet has been incredibly low given that what will likely happen and what's already likely happened is that there's been a degree of normalization of this now. It's simply been so long that people have just kind of gotten used to it. And the problem there is that people are used to it, even if it's terrible, it becomes much more difficult to stop it. I, I think, yeah, I, I think that's, that's true. But I also, and this may, this is anecdote, anecdata, I know, but it is my sense that in the last short while that sense of being used to it is wearing thin maybe it's the fact that we are out of winter we're into spring maybe simply that fact that the seasonal change has occurred and people are starting to look out into the world again and think well can we go outside can we do things can we be i don't i i don't know if that 
I would be very slow if I was in government to assume that the level of compliance which we have had up to now, which has been brought about because people have been bred into this sense of, oh, well, of acceptance through habit, that that is necessarily going to persist. I think that that could fray very easily. Well, I suppose, Michael, we'll definitely find out. We will. News Talk embarrassed themselves today. Oh, yeah. Quite hilariously, actually. So, News Talk had a guest on, and that guest had talked about the uh, the gripped um, zero COVID leaks from ISAC. So, it was Ewan McKenna, the um, sports writer. And he went on, he was talking about how you know, lockdowns had to end, and basically this was a bit of a nightmare for Ireland. Ewan is over in, I think, Portugal. So, he's got the advantage of being able to look in, but also see what Portugal is doing. And he was saying, look, there's no plan, there's no control, government doesn't seem to know what it's doing. And he brought up that uh, some of the things that we had reported ISAC is saying. Apparently, he was very well received on the show. The host was saying they had so many people uh, reaching out to him. A lot of agreement from him. Not total, but very, very heavy agreement. I think any time this, this sort of thing happens, it's partially just driven by the fact that there's not much discussion of this on Irish media. It's simply what's happening. And so anytime someone says something different, there is sort of a, okay, well, that's at least refreshing, even if I don't agree with it. So it finishes up and they, as usual, they upload the show as a podcast up onto News Talk. And I listen to it and it's, you know, it's it's fine. It's It's as normal. Later that evening, though, or sometime over the night, they go back and they actually take down the original podcast and they edit it and they remove all of the section where Ewan talked about ISAG and zero leaks. Now, he didn't mention Gript. He didn't uh-huh. mention anyone else. He just said that this had happened. And he quoted some of the stuff that they'd said about looking for ways to increase fear and uncertainty. Stuff like that. And I got up in the morning. Someone had sent a message to Gript saying he couldn't access it and did we know what was happening with it. And I went and looked and I, I assumed when it was 404 the entire thing had been taken down for some legal trouble. But no, it was still up on the website. And I went in and I noticed that this was now, I think, something like 84 seconds shorter. And as soon as I knew that, or as soon as I saw that, I was like, I can bet I know exactly what was edited out of that podcast. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it was all the ISAC stuff, as I said. So what we did is I, I mentioned it to Ewan and I sent it on to John McGurk and the Grip lads and took some screenshots of it and we had the original audio saved because we've been kind of pretty closely following any mention of the Zero Leaks thing in mainstream media. And we put up an article about it and we pointed out that there had been no explanation given, there had been no note there and if you hadn't heard the original you wouldn't have known it was edited. I also have to say from an audio engineering point of view it was fantastically well edited. If I hadn't seen the original and the length of it I would not have known that was edited at all. It was just very well done. Yeah, I mean it, it's very easy to leave a sort of artifact or an oddness to it as listeners to this podcast have probably heard the odd time. That's where something has been removed or just because some things you don't want to actually say upon review. <laughs> yes, um, upon m- mature reflection. Yes, yes. And um, so we put a story on it and then news talk started trending on Twitter and a couple of people got involved. And basically the long and short of it was that news talk was starting to look pretty bad because people were mocking them heavily. But news talk went back and without notification again, they put up the original file 
So you can now go and listen to it, and it's got all of the Isaac stuff in it. But here's the thing, Michael. Yeah. If they had done nothing, they could have just said there was a legal issue and we couldn't stand over the Isaac stuff. So we just, usually you take the entire thing down or you cut the segment or whatever, and you'd make a note. But by putting it back up, here's the problem. If your legal people look at something and say, we can't stand over that, you have to take it down, you don't put it back up because it's a legal issue for you. Can I ask you a question here? Because I, I, I was aware of the story and I'd seen the first bit, but I haven't been mad. I, I didn't get a chance to listen to the, the two side by side. You know the bit that they excised? <clears throat> was there a bit where Ewan said something about, you know, we're not allowed to talk about this and they said something like, oh, well, you're here, so obviously that's not true. Yeah, the, the section afterwards. So they let him talk for a while and then they said, well, you and like, no one is being silenced. You're here and, you know, we're asking these questions, which sort of makes it look quite bad when you then go back and remove that section. See, that's to me, that's the that's the, the best bit about that. That because I, I go, right. when they, they make a point of the fact, you know, they're actually asking, you know, he's here and he, you know. It's all nonsense. They, they, they go and then they take that bit out. It wasn't um, It wasn't a great look for them. But as I said, the interesting thing is they put it back up because if it was legal, would not have gone back up. It would yeah. have just been, they might have put up a note saying there was a legal issue or we couldn't stand over. Would not have gone back up because you don't accept those kind of liability risks. Defamation is not something you'll run into lightly in Irish law. No. So then the question there, though, Michael, is if it wasn't legal, what was it? And why was it uploaded as normal? And then nearly as if you had uploaded it, given people time to have stopped listening to it and interest to have waned a bit, and then you edit it. That's just all odd, because if it, if it was the presenter or if it was the um, producer of the show, it wouldn't have gone up at all. They would have just put up the edited version. So someone made a decision who is slightly removed from the show itself, Yeah, possibly in some sort of station management role, that that, uh, that podcast, that, that radio interview, should have no record of ISAG in it. But not for legal reasons. And I think that's interesting. It's, it's curious. It's the dog that didn't bark at night and then ends up barking the next day, after all. It's, it is a curious thing. And it sounds like an editorial decision. It's also, it, it was a silly thing for mainstream media to do in relation to anything, but particularly when it involves a senator, a media outfit, and a popular journalist, all of whom have the potential to bring it up if they notice it. And also, I mean, from Grip's perspective, it was a great opportunity to just say, you know that media we said we, you couldn't trust? <laughs> Two recordings side by side. What do you think of that? Yeah. <laughs> But no, it was actually very good fun. But onto onto something which is actually it's it's still spectacularly good fun because I've started to um, look forward to this woman's pronouncements from the mountain with uh, with great affection. I must say, Mary MacLeese is unhappy about the Pope again. Yeah, again in in horror, shock horror news, Pope is Catholic. Um, who 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 could have known? It's. The, the story I came across at first t was in the Irish Times, Gary. When I went back for the for tonight to send you the link to the story in the Irish Times, I couldn't find it. I don't know what's happened to it. Just, I can't find the archive for it anyway. But, no, it's been um, removed. I, I, 
And I honestly God, don't think it's been removed for any weird or just been removed for some reason. I don't know why. So, uh, but it was covered in a thing called Head Topics Ireland, so, which I found a, a version of it from the Social Affairs. Really <laughs> love this Social Affair, Religion and Beliefs section of the Irish Times. And the headline is Mary MacLeese dismayed at Vatican ban on same sex blessings. Now, the listeners may not be aware of this, but there was a bit of a hoo-ha because the Vatican came out and said that priests would not be allowed to bless same-sex unions, same-sex marriages, because they could not, priests could not be involved in blessing things uh, where, I can't remember what the exact language was, something, where uh, the uh, union was sinful. The word sin came into it anyway, you know, which is the Catholic Church. And, it's part of their trade. Anyway, Mary MacLeese is dismayed at the same-sex blessings. You know what? There are churches, Gary, out there. There are Christian churches to meet just about every every need and every taste you could possibly want. You have non-subscribing Presbyterians. You have subscribing Presbyterians. You have... Reformed Presbyterians, we freeze, you've Episcopalians, you've continuing Episcopalians, you've Anglicans, you've everything. Quakers, Unitarians, everything and anything. You have churches where you can have bishops who are lesbian women who are in same-sex marriages with other lesbian women bishops. You know, it's not that the market isn't there meeting the need of the consumer. But is it really a surprise to people to discover that the Catholic Church believes that sex between men is not quite the thing? Is that a surprise? Because it seems to be dismay would imply some element of surprise, some sort of, oh my God, I never thought they would do that. I mean, I could you say it shouldn't be a surprise, but the Irish Times takes down the McAleese story for whatever reason, maybe just they didn't like it. But they put up another one where instead of MacAleese, they went to one of the founders of the Association of Catholic Priests, a Father Brendan Hoban, or Hoban, and he said that it was deeply surprising. His his reason why people would be surprised by it, and I th- I thought you'd like this, Michael, as someone who studied for the priesthood. God, people will be surprised by this statement as priests bless animals, cars, and in the course of their ministry give blessings in sundry situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's basically the same thing, isn't it? Um, taking what the Catholic Church regards as the single foundational unit of human society, which is marriage between a man and a woman, which will lead to the procreation of children who will be socialized and catechized in the faith, is the same as blessing a Volvo. My understanding is that Volvos very rarely marry other Volvos and engage in sexual activities which are not considered to be licit. That, you know, um, poodles, Gary, poodles can have sex outside marriage and the church does not take a position on that. Now, if a Catholic, a member of the Catholic faith was to have sex with a poodle, they would take a position on that. Not on the poodle, but on the other, the other person involved. That would not be considered to be a licit thing either. The Catholic Church calls everybody to chastity, except those people who are in exclusive monogamous relationships, who are called to be chaste to everybody except the, themselves. I, I, who, they're surprised by this. I, 
I, how can you be surprised? I mean, this is this is pure performance. Uh, then again, you have to. There is part of you how to have to say it's almost admirable. Mary's capacity for surprise and indignation is beyond that of the average person, isn't it? I have no dog in this fight at all. But I've just, I really love hearing Mary McAleese talk about the Catholic Church. Because Mary, I, I, doesn't Mary have a doctorate in theology? She, uh, canon law. I have never heard Mary McAleese, in all I've heard her talk about the church and how it's a change, I have never heard McAleese actually make any argument based on the Bible, doctrine, law, Christian philosophy, or anything other than I would like you to do this. And I keep hearing that she is an expert in these things, but at this point, I just kind of wonder exactly where that's coming from. Because presumably an expert at these things would have the capacity to mention these things every now and then. Well, I suppose Mary would think that what she's saying is just obvious to any reasonable person speaking in good faith. It's just obvious. I mean, we have... For God's sake, we we have we, we have to go forward. You know, listen, as regards dogs in the fight, I had my personal disagreement with the, that institution. Um, I came to the conclusion that they and I could not coexist in an honest fashion with each other because they had beliefs and opinions on things which I did not share. So I said, let's, you know, we shook hands and left as friends. One of the things that people like Mary, God bless her, are always going on about is the fact that the Catholic Church, they'd say, oh, look at the, nobody's in the pews, Gary. There's nobody in the pews. No, people are not engaged. People are not involved. We have to reform. We have to de-ecclesialize. We have to take away the hierarchy. We have to have gay women priests and bishops, and we have to have married gay women priests and bishops, and we have to get the laity involved in celebrating mass because we have to, we don't really need priests. And no. They go through a whole series, which, frankly, you're thinking at the, the end of this, the resemblance that what they're describing has to anything that might one might think of being the Catholic Church is fairly small. But, and this is really my point, all of these things are the, what they offer as solutions to what they perceive to be the problem faced by the Church. But they're the same solutions that have been offered in good faith by dozens and dozens of churches that will be described as being in the liberal Protestant tradition. And you know what, Gary? Their churches are emptying even more quickly than churches, traditional Catholic churches. I mean, there have been some interesting studies on the sort of people who are still religious now, particularly amongst younger people who effectively choose to become religious. Yes. Based on the, the culture they're in. They're not terribly liberal, and they don't seem to be looking for things that are just representative of the society they're in. They seem to be looking for things that have an you know, an internal sense of confidence and purpose and belief and history. And so whenever I hear people like Mary McAleese talking about the problems facing the Catholic Church, I can, can't, I, you know, I do kind of think as an outsider to the Catholic Church, well, you kind of seem to be the problem, though. <laughs> like you and all of the more sort of progressive priests who are pushing for this seem to be pushing for something that will make you temporarily popular. But it actually, what it actually reminds me of is Fianna Fáil's Dublin strategy. I was thinking exactly the same thing, Gary. Exactly the same thing. We will change and we will become what people in Dublin want. And then we'll pick up votes in Dublin. 
And sure, the people in the country will have nowhere else to go, so they'll stick with us because they yes. know us and they trust us and they like us. And then you end up in, you know, 2% in Dublin. Your rural groups are just devastated. And you're sort of looking there going, oh, this may actually be an extinction event. Yeah. What will happen is, if they were to do what all the things that Mary would like them to do, they would get fantastic editorials and opinion pieces. I mean, the press. Oh. The Irish Times would have a lovely time. But do you think that that would mean that the day after tomorrow, Roisin Ingle would be signing up to, to, to do the second reading at, her, at, at Mass? Now, I'm saying that, I don't know. Maybe Roisin Ingle is a regular reader at, her, at Mass, I don't know. But you take my point. The idea that suddenly all these people who would welcome all of these changes would suddenly be sucked in by the power of the Holy Spirit into all these various churches, it's just not good. What would happen is the people who are, who are already in the churches are going to go, uh, no, this isn't actually what we we signed up for. I, I, I feel, Michael, that there's probably something in the Bible about this. Some saying or something that might give them some guidance on what they should do here. Something like, you know, for what shall a profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? <laughs> Something like that. Just to throw, you know, one out. But no, I, I suppose it depends. The, a lot of people seem to think of the church as just a social institution. And the Catholic Church does an immense amount of social good, which is never talked about because the bishops have no willingness to put it forward. And most people are just happy to keep kicking the church. So why are you going to bring up, like, their homelessness services? Catholic Church is the world's largest provider of education and health services to poor people in the world. And by a distance, it is the largest supplier of education and health services to poor people. Uh, it does uh, it does a lot of stuff in that area. That There is no doubt about that. But there does seem to be a push among certain people that that is what the church should be, a provider of social services. And I think without the risk, at risking to be serious for a moment about this, I think what there, there's a fundamental misunderstanding here for what people are looking for who are in this in the year 2021 in the western world and we're being very eurocentric about this as well and mary is being very eurocentric about this these are very much the values of the west that she's talking about but if you are religious or somebody's looking at religion and see considering religion this you you're not looking these people are not looking for simply an alternative ethical system they're looking for something which which is rooted and rooted and and traditional and has ritual and also more than anything is supernatural something which speaks to something beyond something transcendent something other it's not just a question will we go for this or will we or will we go for what's the phrase the big thing the utilitarians are into these days something altruism effective altruism effective altruism you know, what, are we going to go with Christianity or are we going to go with effective altruism? It's not simply an ethical modality. Christianity is not an ethical religion. It has ethics, but it's Judaism, for example. Judaism is an ethical religion. Christianity isn't. It's an, it's, it's an eschatological religion. It's a mystery. It's a mysterious religion. It's, a, it's about belief as much as it is about practice. And the attraction for most, as you say, for younger people coming in, going into the churches today or staying in the churches today because they value that transcendence. And they, they also value its counterculturalness. And I suppose maybe that's one of the oddities here as well that people don't get. Uh, I've known I, in my time a number of perfectly nice priests 
who were ordained back in the 70s, right? And this is post-Vatican II, and they were gripped by an awful lot of the ideas that were very big and trendy and hot in, say, 1975. And Ireland in 1975 was a very, very different country to the one that is today. I think that Mary thinks of herself as being countercultural, but actually Mary is absolutely smack dab in the middle of the mainstream of Irish culture. There's nothing about what she's saying which pushes back against any of the assumptions that are pop, that are that exist within the wider culture. We have what was the vote in the marriage referendum? Sixty six, thirty three, something like that. I mean, the idea that we live in what is effectively a very liberal society. Most people have liberal progressive opinions about most social most social social constructs. If you're in religion, these if you're in the business of being interested in religion today, you are countercultural. There is this sort of we will change to be to the things that the culture deems to be good, but then you sort of go. Well, the culture doesn't deem, it doesn't have the same interests, it doesn't have the same ethical points and moral, moral points that you do. If you change to reflect it, there's not going to be anything of you left. I think what the point you're making there is absolutely to the, is that central to it. it. The culture does not have the same interest as a church does. It's fundamentally different ideas. Catholic the church, certainly, and most Christian churches are teleological. They're they are directed, they believe that we are directed towards an end, and that end is transcendent and it's beyond and outside of ourselves. That's not what the culture believes. And that's fine. And, you know, I'm not saying that anybody should buy into one or the other. If you want, I've often said Unitarianism, it was the first great, Unitarianism maybe in Quakerism, Shakers as well, I suppose, but Unitarianism, Unitarianism was one of the first great modernist Christian manifestations. It's now kind of post-Christian, I suppose. And they're perfectly nice people. It's a perfectly respectable religion and a perfectly nice ethic. And it's available to you. If you want to go there, there's a church on Stevens Green. Uh, but, but Catholicism is something radically, fun, foundationally different to that. And its end is to that is different. Its teleology is different. Its worldview is different. But anyway... I just think it's hilarious. I genuinely commented. I, I actually laughed when I saw the headline, dismayed. I thought, ah, oh, God, Mary, you, did you honest to God think that the Pope was going to come out and say, we're going to bless? Because if they're, if you're blessing gay uh, civil unions or marriages, that's obviously a sign, an explicit sign of spiritual approbation. And she doesn't concern herself, for example, the fact, and that she's a, a woman, I'm sure she's very careful, about issues like diversity. Our attitude to, uh, say, gay marriage, Gary, you will be surprised to know this, is very different to the attitude which would be widespread, say, in Nigeria or Uganda. This is just a, a personal thing. This is not something I can actually know about Mary McAleese. But I think one of the reasons Mary has gone so kind of mad on this, using Mary as a bit of a proxy for wider society, is that Mary doesn't like the idea of hierarchy. And not yes. hierarchy is in the sense of a pope, but if you have a religion or you have any code of conduct that tells you this is the way to live your life, and if you live your life this way, you're living a good life. And if you don't live your way, your life this way, you are living maybe not a bad life, but not the life you should be leading. It establishes a hierarchy of those who are acting good lives and those who aren't. And I've noticed a lot of the push for religions to reform in this sense, 
seems to be based on the idea that that shouldn't be the case at all. But if that's not the case at all, I'm not sure what you can do. Because all religions have ways of carrying yourself, of treating others, things they consider important. And if you remove that distinction and just say that everyone is the same regardless of how they live, you can't really have a religion, I'm not, I don't think. Well, no, not in the sense that we've traditionally understood it. I think what you're, what you're getting at is here is that religions like the Catholic Church and others believe that there is an external locus of authority when it comes to moral choices. And we, in, in modern, modernity, you could say post-modernity, in fact, I think the essence of post-modernity is the, is the rejection of that, is the belief that our, our source of our moral authority is personal, that we, we find within ourselves whatever it is that we consider to be our, more, our most authentic self, and we express that. And as long as we are doing what makes us happy and makes us fulfilled, as far as, insofar as we believe that we are, that is the only arbiter for it. And we, we, we reject the idea that somebody outside can come in and say, well, no, that's not actually the way you should be living. You are, you're, you're failing to live your best life. I mean, it's a cliche, you know, this, that, that phrase of, mod- of, of modernity, just, you know, no judgment here. Or are you judging me? The very notion of judging. Shame for his own, exactly. This notion of judging. But, I mean, Christianity believes that one of the functions of God is to be a judge. And there shall be a judgment day. And that's a very, very, that's an idea which is absolutely antithetical, I think, to a lot of mod- to, to modern thinking. The idea that we we are our own judges we are our own arbiters we are our own we are our own creations now i think at the moment we are seeing this manifest itself in in a kind of a reductio ad absurdum that that we're getting to the point that we can look inside ourselves and discover all sorts of things gary that we never knew we discover we're in the wrong we are in the wrong body whatever myself whatever myself happens to be my true me has been born into the wrong body with the wrong genitals, maybe born into the wrong species. I am in some way mislocated, but I, but I, I have the capacity and the right to change that circumstance to in order to mould myself into the perfect me that I understand. And if you to say to somebody, no, I think actually that's not really what's happening here, but you need help, is to make a judgment which is not acceptable. They're speaking their truth, Michael. They're speaking their truth. And the Catholic Church says, I, uh, well, the Catholic Church, the Gospels, which they are tangentially associated with, says, I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life. You know, he whosoever should come to the Father cannot come to him except through me. There are absolute statements, it would, or what seem to be very like absolute statements of truth that we have to match up to. Anyway, this has gone rather far more serious than I had intended that it should do when we started this. Of course, Michael, it's only natural that a man who left the priesthood and a man with no spiritual inclinations at all should begin a detailed conversation of the concept of hierarchy in the church. Well, it's not just the hierarchy in the church, though, Gary, is it? And you, you kind of adverted to that. It's any hierarchy. And that's one of the reasons, like, patriarchy has become this shorthand for any kind of hierarchy. And one of the criticisms that routinely was made, if you, in any kind of, if you read feminist 
texts from the 70s and the 80s is they compared the, they compared the way, supposedly, men and women work. That women work in circles and men work in pyramids. And circles work better than pyramids. They don't They don't use patriarchy now. They generally would use hierarchy. What's that? It's all social systems built around domination and oppression. So, you know, racism, ableism, capitalism, all of that. And that's another issue I think that's informing. I don't know if it's explicit or even fully conscious with, with Mary, and not just Mary, but Mary, like you say, Mary as a as a meme for all the, a lot of people who say these kinds of things. It's they see the operation of power, and all power power is is bad, and power is is is, is oppressive, and all of these systems are basically just negotiations of, about who has power, and so you have to just you have to deconstruct the whole thing in a sense almost to let the power out to deflate the whole system because otherwise it's this it's a corrupt oppressive regime and a, a, a an oppressive structure and that's of course why we have to deconstruct everything and i think that that's part that's a large part of it and which connects the idea of judgment this is all about again about power and using your power to make judgments and to feel make people feel bad about themselves when they're actually just trying to be their most authentic selves and you know uh, I think it's not that there, there's no truth to that either. There are, there may be, there may be some truth to that, but that is again uh, another story. Uh, it's funny today. I was having a conversation with somebody. He said to me, "But, um, but you'd be a quite. You're, I mean, okay, you're 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 not religious, but you're a spiritual person, aren't you?" Which I I was horrified. I said, "Absolutely not. In my life, I have been religious, but I've never been spiritual." You know those people you meet at, you know those people you meet at a party, and they say, "Well, you know, I don't like organized religion, and I'm not at all a religious person, but I'm deeply spiritual." And I think, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." To me, it's spiritual. That's a bit like being a poet. It's not something you call yourself. You get other people to say that. Other people get to say, "Oh, he's a very spiritual person." You don't get to say that about yourself. If you're saying about your spouse, I'm very spiritual, I will tell you, Gary, there's a very good chance you're not that spiritual at all. And on that wonderfully uplifting note, we will see you on Sunday. With the help of God. All the best. <laughs>